Hey, good morning. We're getting ready to jump into a couple of weeks of camp. How many of you guys between middle school, high school, I know we had kids earlier. You're, you got kids going, you're going, or something like that. Raise your hand. Okay, it's exciting things. One person is excited. Um, but no, it's exciting. So I just want to encourage you guys to be praying for those camps coming up. Middle school launching tomorrow. There's lots to be praying about. Uh, very, very exciting to be able to be, be part of God changing lives radically. And so it's awesome, awesome, good stuff. Hey, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. We're going to be working through the entire uh, chapter 11. Last week, I don't know if you were here, uh, we got kind of hung up on the first verse and didn't make it very far. And so we'll work through the rest of it uh, today. Um, if you have your Bibles or your phones, you want, want to turn there. Also, they mentioned earlier, uh, you guys did way better than the 815 on tearing your program. So good job. They <laughs> struggle a little bit. Um, but if you guys uh, could, on the program, there's some different notes there. There's also weekly reading that goes along with what uh, we're going to be studying in today. And there's scripture memory that ties into our summer circles. So Galatians 6.10 is uh, what we're going to be memorizing this week. Um, last week, we spent most of our time talking about uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And, and Paul's making this statement, and he's saying basically... Follow me to the degree that I follow Jesus. Because we could say, hey, that sounds a little bit arrogant. Hey, follow me. Jesus is this way. I'm the example. He's actually not saying that. He's uh, saying, to the degree that I follow Christ, uh, follow me. And so if we're going to claim that in our lives, we got to say, hey, am I living in the way of the gospel or am I living the way of the gospel? It's only one word difference, but it's completely, I mean, it leads us either to, hey, are we standing in the way of the gospel, which nothing stops the gospel. It will plow directly through us. Or are we saying, hey, follow me as I follow Christ and lead people towards that relationship um, with Jesus. Uh, today, as Paul's going to address, as we've been talking. He's dealing with a church that's got a lot of things like messed up, okay? Uh, there, even today, we're going to be talking about like people are getting drunk at communion, okay? Drunk at communion. That's excessive, okay? They're overeating. They're eating all the communion. They're eating the feast. They're eating the food, and they're not sharing with other people. Uh, they're behaving like children, okay? Uh, they're thinking about themselves, and he's writing this letter to correct them and direct them, and they've got a couple of things in their culture that's distracting them. Uh, specific it's going to be talk, we're going to be talking about head coverings. Should men, women wear head coverings? What does that um, look like? And we got to ask ourselves, is he giving us a commandment that's to be carried forever until Jesus comes back? Or is, is he giving, was this something that was specifically directed to a culture from a certain time in a certain space? I'm going to read, um, the verses different than the first service. The first service I talked about it a lot, and then finally we read the verses, and it was confusing. So we're going to nail this one, okay? Let's read the verses first. First Corinthians eleven uh, two through three. We'll start there. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is. God. Let's carry on to verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonor, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife would not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a woman to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So, what does this have to do with now, what does this have to do in our culture? What does this have to do with today? Because often when we see scripture, we got to say, okay, is this a timeless 
uh, covenant? Is this a, co- a commandment that's been given? Is this a principle that can we can draw something from it? Or is this totally cultural and it doesn't work and doesn't apply um, to us? We've got to look into the historical context better and fully understand it. Uh, before we jump into the details of it, I want to ask who has traveled globally? You've traveled worldwide, you've lived worldwide, worked world, you've been in a, a couple of different cultures. Okay? Um, you're like, I've been in Nevada. You know, like, yeah, that's a different world. Um, but if you've been to other cultures, maybe you've seen, you know, they do, there's things that are done differently. Like in some cultures, if you show someone the bottom of your shoe, it's very offensive. It's like one of the worst things uh, that you can do. It's, it's, it's offensive. It's saying you're unclean or this is what I, I think about you. In some cultures, you can't wear your shoes in a house. And some of you are like, dude, I live in Meridian, and that is the culture of my home. Okay, how many are shoes off in my house, people? Yeah, we used to be that way. Um, uh, but yeah, some are shoes off people, like don't, don't cross that line. Uh, if you, in some cultures, you can't eat with your, or you can't eat with your left hand, because your left hand is reserved for like hygiene things, okay? Meaning like when you go to the bathroom, you use your left hand and stuff, okay? So if you eat with your left hand, that is like super gross, okay? In some cultures, uh, it's gross to, it's considered offensive to pick your teeth after you eat a meal, Okay? especially with your left hand, okay? So, but there, different cultures are different. You may know some of these things. In some countries, uh, the rules for women can be very strict. Um, before I go there, how many of you guys know what a beso is? A beso. Like one person that's been to Argentina. Um, it's that kiss that goes on the cheek. You know, it's that kiss that goes on the cheek. Like if we were to apply everything scripturally, you know, First uh, Corinthians thirteen twelve says, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> like they kick that literally in, in Argentina. You go on a missions trip with young single guys and they're thinking it's the great, the best missions trip ever. And they're like, ah, you know, they're going for the baso and they turn and catch themselves a little action. Um, but what if, you know, if we apply everything in scripture, then we would be greeting each other with a holy kiss all the time. Uh, single people are like, that sounds like a great thing. Like, we should start that. Um, but uh, in some cultures, that's just how they operate. In Ethiopia, it's three kisses, one on each side, and then you go here, here. It's like a triple blessing, okay? So, but in some countries, women can be uh, viewed differently, and the rules can be strict. I wrote a few things down. Uh, in some countries, women can't drive, sit in certain areas of restaurants, share a pool, swimming pool with a male, can't talk to a male that isn't their guardian or a relative in public. Uh, they need male guardians to give them permission for these things, to get married, to divorce, to travel, to get an education, like literally somebody signing off, a male saying you can get an education, to get a job, to get certain medical procedures done, to even open a bank account. And in some cultures, in some uh, countries, uh, women have to wear certain, they have certain dress codes, clothes that are loose fitting, uh, maybe where they're only their eyes are seen. And so it's quite uh, different in some cultures. And so what's being addressed here specifically is about head covering. Should we cover our head or not? That's not as common in our day and time. I do know um, some different religious sects that do. I know some that they do it more as a um, not for the reasons of like if you if your head isn't covered you're promiscuous, but more like just for tradition to remember you know the Bible to remember as to why certain things happen um, and why you know what Scripture is about. It's not necessarily like hey you're you're 
you know, a harlot if you don't cover your head. But there's, there's lots of things that the Bible talks about, and then we have to look at it historically in our context, and also realizing that, that the world does change and culture does change. So, like, the word dope has changed in my lifetime. So the word dope, when I was a kid, when I was really young, it was like dopey the dwarf, you know? Like the seven dwarves, one was dopey. It was like, so if it was like, hey, you're dopey or you're dope or whatever, like it was like you're dumb, <laughs> like you're not very smart, okay? And then I learned about the word dope from a drug standpoint, not by personal experience, but because people talking about, you know, using dope. And then I heard it as an action verb, like when Lance Armstrong got busted, that he was doping, okay? I'm not bringing that up, okay? Even though it is the Tour de France. Did that thing end yet? No, they're still going? They last forever. Um, well, they're touring France. Um, but the, so that doping thing that took place, that was an action verb and, then verb, and then now it's a, I mean, it's a synonym to like awesome, fire, lit, Dope, like they're all in the same category. So you can say all those things. I won't act like I'm cool, but I've heard that word around my house a lot. Um, but it's changed. And so we have to look at it and say, is this a timeless principle? Is this a, is this a commandment that we've been given or was it a cultural, a specific thing that was being addressed culturally? It was a letter being written from Paul to a group of people. The culture was different there than it is now. We just have to go, okay, what does this look like and why? Some people look at this passage and they would say, hey, this is Paul just trying to push the authority or leadership of women down, okay? Because it's talking about how uh, a husband is the head of his wife. And so some people look at it and say, hey, is this, is this addressing males and females? Is this addressing only within a marriage? Is this addressing an entire gender and saying women are less than and they need to do these things? Well, in Corinth, here's the problem. The culture had gotten really provocative, very nasty. There was lots of false worship, like false idol worship that was going on. One of the most popular idols that was worshipped was the goddess of fertility, which there were temple prostitutes and there were people, I mean, it was very, it was steeped in like infidelity, promiscuity was going on. And so what Paul is saying is we need to be different than that worship. They're getting together for worship, like literally having a worship gathering. We need to be different than that as we gather as a church. So something needs to separate us. And in culture, it was cultural to have your hair and your head covered. But let's be careful about it. Verse 2 through 3, it's telling us that there are traditions that are around. Verse 3 says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And so when we look at submission that's being talked about here, it actually references God the Father, God the Son. So the Trinity is made up of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all three equal. They have different functions, but they're all equal. And it's a three-part focus, okay? It's saying God the Father is head over God the Son. Here's what Scripture says around that. John 10 says, I and the Father are one. Meaning there's this perfect intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. That they are one. There's this perfect intimacy. So when we look at a husband and wife, the goal of a good marriage, the goal of a marriage is to be in perfect unity with one another. It's difficult. We're humans. We have fallen sinful nature. But it's to walk in step with one another. John 16 says, I am not alone. My Father is with me. So this is God the Son. This is Jesus saying, 
we are in this constant companionship with one another. We're walking in step with one another. Verse uh, 28 of chapter 14 in John, it says, the father is greater than I. Meaning, Jesus is saying, I'm not the father, I'm the son. I submit to God the father. Yes, we're equal, but there's this authority, there's this order that exists, and I submit. So this is not... the. When the Bible talks about submission, it's not saying this is a requirement. It's not saying that it is demanded. Rather, it's a gift that we can, a gift that we can give. Last week, we talked about being distracted, and this Corinthian church was very, very distracted. So I kind of wanted to bring back a point from last week to this week to get us to, to understand fully what's going on here. And it's this. It's recognized that these minor distractions can become major dangers. I didn't realize till the last service that major danger sounds like, like rhymey and cheesy, but it does. Okay, welcome to Rock Harbor. Um, but these minor distractions become major dangers. And the second thing would be we've got to realize that it's through the gift of submission that the gift of redemption is granted. It's given. We're, we're, we're given. It's, it's, it's born out of a submission. So Jesus, when he was going to be crucified, he's in the garden. He's saying, I don't want my will to be done, but I want your will to be done. He's praying this to, to God the Father. So there's a relationship, it's submitting, it's saying, I will do whatever it takes to rescue, to be that, that, that promised lamb that was going to be offered as a sacrifice for all of our sins. He's saying, I'm willing to do that. I submit to your will, not my will. What is it that you want me to do? There's a submission there. It's a gift that's there. See, submission in a marriage makes for a great marriage. Submission in a marriage makes for a great marriage, but submission is not one-sided. It is a two-sided submission saying, I submit to you. This passage we're in today parallels uniquely with Ephesians 5 that talks about husbands loving their wives and see to it that wives would respect their husband. The funny part is, is it says husbands love your wives three times because it takes three times for us to get it. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Well, that's the Jesus card. I mean, you just drop that one. Then it's as you love your own body because... Us guys, believe it or not, we love our own body. And then it also says, just simply love your wife. And for ladies, one time it is said, see to it that a wife respects her husband. So there's this mutual submission to one another. There's this love that's given. There's this respect that's given. And when it says in verse, I think it's three, it says of of 1 Corinthians 11, when it says that the head of the wife is the husband, it does not say... The head of every woman is every man. This is important because you cannot use this to say men should be the authority in all these different ways because of this passage. It says in the the organism, the relationship that God created, the marriage that is from God, it's a gift from God. Within the marriage, the husband is to be the head. The wife is to be the helper. In just a moment, we'll talk about head and helper and dive into it a little bit deeper. This submission that is talked about here, it's not talking about value. It's not talking about specifically like position. It's saying that there should be a mutual respect and a mutual submission for one another. Submission does not mean inferiority. Submission just simply says, hey, I want to prioritize your needs over my needs. It's just saying, hey, I submit to you. It's not one-sided. It's two-sided. 
It's not about equality or inferiority or anything like that. I mean, we are equal to one another. I think often about Chris Ann and I's decision-making, how often we submit to one another. Hey, what do you think? Or what's your thought about this? It's not like I'm seeking out just her opinion. opinion. I'm rather submitting to what she sees as fit and vice versa. She's submitting to me as I see fit and we trust one another. And that's a, when our marriage is thriving, because it can be challenging. Believe it or not, I can be sinful. Um, believe it or not, I can, I can fall short. I can want my way. But when we submit to one another, it's awesome what, what God does. I mean, how many of you guys, when you're trying to make a decision about where to eat, like you're the person that really actually doesn't care, but you really kind of care? Yeah, you're those people. Like, I, I really don't care. Like, how many times I've had that conversation with my wife, hey, where do you want to eat? I don't, you know, I don't really care. And then I list like seven places, and it pretty much comes down to Baja Fresh. You know, and like, that was the answer. We just had to get through like seven other no's to get to Baja Fresh, you know, to use the $2 off anything over $10, you know? So, and some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And then we share fajitas. It's awesome. Um, but that's, that's just kind of how it operates. It's a submission to say, hey, I, it doesn't matter to me. I want to submit to whatever it is that you would want. When it, when it comes in here and it starts to talk about the head covering, the reason this is important is because he was saying, hey, men do not dress like women by covering your head. It, just as much as a lady not covering her head, you covering your head would violate the same disorder that's going on. And the reason that Paul is saying this, the church is out of whack they're getting drunk at communion. They're overeating at communion and not sharing food. And now they're dressing and acting however they want. Their gathering is actually causing more of a distraction than a benefit. It's more harm than benefit. And so when it's talking about these head coverings, the reason that they're addressing this is because you have these other false idol worship gatherings that are going on that the prostitutes, they would not, one, not wear head coverings, and secondly, they would shave their heads, basically saying, hey, we're trying to stick it to religion. We don't even care. We're doing completely rebellious behavior because we want to go so different than what is going on and what they're asking in the conservative cultures that we're going to live as this. And Paul is saying, let's not be a distraction, that if not wearing a head covering, because hair was viewed as provocative, it was, it was somewhat sexual. It was, um, in that culture, it was to cover your hair was a, a modest way of operating, and especially in the church, to be careful that we don't cause people to stumble. And so the only reason that they're specifically addressing this is because there was some confusion that was going on. The bottom line is, Paul is saying, hey, men and women are different. They have different roles. They have different functions. And in our day and age, it's important for us to hear that. See, in our day and age, people are trying to erase uh, gender distinctions. But scripture is saying not only are men and women different, but God has, been des- has designed them with different purposes, with, where gender has value and its importance, and there's a purpose behind it. There's a plan that's behind it. God has created positives for this. And so we have to look at Scripture and say, okay, what is Scripture saying? Verse 7 says, For a man ought not to cover his head since he's in the image and the glory of God, but a a woman is the glory of man. He's saying men were created first. This is just a statement of order. Saying men were created first and then the women, then a woman was created. For man was not made from a woman, but a woman from man. Neither was a man created for woman, but woman for man. 
So this is where the head and the helper comes in. So the head is talked about as the husband. The helper, uh, the Bible talks about as the wife. When it talks about head and you look at the, the origin of that word, it's, it's, it's the beginning of. When we look at Genesis and creation, we see that there is an order that God has put together. And when he ref- uses this word head, it's saying this is the beginning. This is the first. God is a God of order and he puts things in place. Uh, Bertolini says it this way. This is a, a commentator, a theologian. He says, this passage has nothing to do with the respective values or personal worth that God places on men versus women. Rather, God established his pattern only as a means of restoring order to an, utter, an otherwise disorderly and chaotic world. So chaos had ensued. And so Paul's coming in by the the power of the Holy Spirit and by communicating principles that Christ communicated while he was here and that God had put into order from the very beginning. And he's saying, okay, this is head, this is helper. So when we hear helper, and this was mentioned in Genesis, you know, after everything that God created, then he created man. And there was one thing that he said was not good. He said, it's not good for a man to be alone. So like, hey, son, that's good. You know, stars, that's good. Ocean, that's good. Animals, that everything's good, good, good. And then he creates man. He said, it's not good. It's not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God created woman. He created female in his image. Male was created in his image. Then he created female in that image. And the intent would be that they would serve side by side, that they would rule together. That one would not rule over or lord over or oppress or abuse or be in a posture of, of just distributing and expecting, but rather that there would be this, this, this uh, unique submission to one another. It didn't say that God created for Adam an assistant. It doesn't say that. It says a helper. See, when we think of the word helper, we probably think of maybe less than or someone that's there to assist or or. Or, or what, but it's, it's rather helper is the accurate word. See, when David called out in the Psalms for the helper to come, he's calling out for God to assist him. So it's not like, hey, God, come alongside my plan. He was actually calling out toward the help. The Holy Spirit is also known as the helper. Okay. This is our, our not just assistant, but rather God, very God the helper. So don't think of this as a less than position. And actually, when you look at that word rib that many translations use that say that, that um, Eve was formed out of the rib of Adam, when you look at the word rib in Hebrew and look throughout scripture, every other time that it's translated, it's the word side. But in Genesis, it's the word rib. Now, rib makes sense because it's on the side, And so we would see it and be like, okay, rib makes sense. Uh, That works either way. But the word side is actually a better translation and probably um, it's a better illustration. Because think of it this way. Like when God created Adam and then he created Eve from the side of Adam. See, if God would have created Adam or Eve from the head of Adam, maybe like his brain, um, but something from his head, then she would have the illustration, the picture that would be there would be to rule over. If God would have created Eve from the foot of Adam, then it would be underneath the foot of man. 
If God would have created Eve out of the front of Adam, it would be for her to lead in front of Adam. If it would have been from the, the backside of Adam, it would be for her to follow his leadership. But rather, God chose the side. And that's what I love about Scripture, because there's pictures involved in it. So that we would lead side by side in unity with one another. Equal, but with different functions. And that's what I love about pictures in the Bible. I mean, when we, I'm going to talk in just a second about baptism, but the simple picture of baptism is beautiful. Think about it this way. If we are, Jesus Christ died for us. He was buried. He rose from the dead. That's the picture of baptism. That when we're baptized by immersion, not by sprinkling, because when you bury someone, you don't sprinkle a little bit of dirt on them. Rather, they're, they're underneath the ground and then they're brought up from the ground. So when somebody is dipped down, baptismo is like it's to be immersed, that we would be dipped under and then brought out. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection that's taken place in our life because of G- the life of Jesus. And so those are the pictures. So now we've get this picture of order that, that women... A woman was created from the side of man. So in this marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, there's this mutual submission side by side in unity. Having this biblical marriage of I submit to you. I'm going to give you the love. I'm going to love you as Christ loved the church. And her saying, hey, and I'm going to see to it that I respect you. I'm going to bring that honor. And there's this mutual and healthy submission. See, God is a God of authority and he puts things into order. And we notice as we were reading this earlier, it's talking about all the, the, the order in which things should be. God is a God of order and there's this authority, the authority that he says, there's a couple of things that he says that we're to do. There are two like commandments. There's two, I mean, ordinances that you would see in the church. There's two practices that Jesus began, one of which was baptism and the second one was communion. See, with baptism, Jesus Christ was baptized. When he was baptized, he wasn't being baptized to forgive, be forgiven of sins because Jesus never sinned. So it was unnecessary for him to be baptized to forgive a sin. Rather, it was a picture of this ministry, and it was the way in which Christians were to operate. And so baptism begins with that. In the next service, we're going to be baptizing a family of three that we get the opportunity. We have the opportunity to meet with them this week and, and see them begin their relationship with Jesus Christ, and they're going to be baptized in just a little bit. In a couple of weeks in the river, we'll see a 100 people or more. I don't know exactly how many people are signed up in Rock Harbor. You guys wait till the last minute possible. Um, God bless all of you. Um, but you're going to sign up today because each one of you ripped out that card and you can't wait to sign up and you're going to sign up your kids and you're going to get that ball rolling, aren't we, guys? That's right. That's good. Um, but baptism is this, it's this picture of death, burial, resurrection. And Jesus said, do it. I did it. So I'm commanding you to do it. Communion is another thing that he began as he was at this supper that he put together, the Last Supper. It was a time of Passover where they began this eating of the bread and drinking of the cup that represented the body and the blood of Jesus. It was his body that was broken. So the bread represents that. The cup represents his blood that was poured out. And this passage goes on to talk more details about how they were abusing. I mean, how can you get communion wrong? Okay, it's like really, really simple. How can you get it wrong? It's instructed over and over in scripture, but somehow they're getting it wrong. 
Verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but rather it's for the worse. It's not for the better. So he's saying, okay, what pastor is going to say, it'd be better if you didn't go to church. No, what you hear all the time is what's going to be the next Sunday. The best Sunday ever is the next Sunday, right? You'd be here next week. Don't want to miss this. Join us at this. You can't miss it. This next series. I mean, that's all we hear typically. And he's saying, it'd be better if you didn't go to church. Your motives are messed up. So I started thinking, what would be the reasons why I would tell someone not to go to church? I would say, don't attend church if you have no, if, if you're not going to repent. Like to just keep attending church, but never repent, never really receive the word of God, never really go, you know what? Like if we're just getting together, we're never going to confess sin. We're never going to make our lives right. We're not going to walk out change so that we can change the world. Like then, then why are we gathering together? I would also say, if we intend to divide, if there is a divisive heart that you're wanting to go in to be divisive, it says in verse 18, for in this place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part. Paul's saying, I know you guys too well. I guarantee you're fighting. I guarantee you're not getting along. And he's saying, there's no reason to get together. And, And now you've made this huge deal out of communion where you're not even doing that. Right. I would also say like, don't attend church if you think it's your salvation. Don't attend church if you think that in and of itself is making you a follower of Jesus. Believe it or not, when you die and you go to heaven, you're not going to go up there and they're going to say, hey man, what church did you go to? Rock Harbor. Hey, is Rock Harbor on the list? You know, the one with the stickers, you know, the stickers on the cars and stuff. Is that one on, you know, meeting in school? Is that one on the list? It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be about your church attendance. But rather, it would be like, have we surrendered our life to Jesus Christ? Have we made him the Lord and the Savior of our life? Have we repented of these sins and we don't have this divisive heart and we're not relying on church attendance or checking some box in order to do so? See, what they had done in verse 19, it says, For there were many factions among them, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. For when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and the other gets drunk. That's just bad. <laughs> Wait, do you not have houses that you can drink in? Or do you not despise the, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. He's saying, I'm not going to compliment you. I'm not going to say, hey, I'm just glad you're getting together as church. I'm glad the church hasn't folded. He's saying this worship gathering that you're doing is not bringing honor to God. See, they had this agape feast. This was a time they would come together and kind of have a potluck. So when they would serve food and what a lot of um, like theologians and commentators say is they think that the wealthy people were eating first because they were bringing the food and those who didn't bring anything kind of stood in the back and didn't really consume. So they were creating classes and groups of people, cliques of people within the church and some were overeating and then some were over drinking and they'd made a mockery because see, when you get to the core of why do we celebrate communion? Why do we participate in it? Do we remember the first communion? Do you remember what was exactly going on whenever Jesus Christ said, let's take the bread, let's take the cup? See, he was about to be betrayed. He was going to the cross the very next day. He was going to sweat great drops of blood as he was in anguish, calling out to his father in submission to the will of the father to say, I'm willing to do whatever, 
to be a sacrifice for this world. But the pain that I endure is great. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. So when they're taking the bread and they're taking the cup, his body was going to be broken. His blood was going to be spilled out. Now the church is getting together and they're selfish. They're irreverent. They're just like, eh, just do it whenever. That's why we're really careful here. And I say almost every time that I'm part of administering or talking about communion is let's not receive this as a tradition that we do every four to six weeks at Rock Harbor. Let's remember what's been done for us so that we can celebrate in this. Let's remember there are people that don't know Jesus Christ, that when we take it, we are grateful for the grace that's been given to us, but we're also thinking about who do we share this grace with, who we share the message of hope with. I also say if you've never received Christ as your Savior, that you would do so now, because if not, it's just bread and it's juice and it's a traditional activity that's done in many churches around the world. But rather, we're going to do it reflecting on what's been done for us, And each time we receive communion, I communicate the gospel that some people would surrender their life to Jesus Christ for the first time and say, I want to receive this as a follower of Jesus. And I want to celebrate that I have new life in him, that his body was broken for me and his blood was poured out for me and receiving that gift. It needs to be a time of confession too. This verse says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That we would examine ourselves. See, what we get with communion is the past, present, and the future. The past, looking back at what Jesus did for us. The present, meaning right now in this time, I'm giving honor to what's been done and I'm grateful for that right now. But the future that he's coming back, the future that I have an eternal home in heaven, that I have the hope of heaven because of the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus that was broken for me. We can cherish that. That we would examine ourselves. That we would confess sin, not like, uh, it's not that big of a deal. What if you were to let that cup and let that tray go by you because you're not in the right place with God. It would be better to pass it on and say, you know what, I need, to, I need some more time in prayer. I need to make some, something right with a brother or a sister, a friend, a parent, just with the Lord. Like I haven't been living right and so I'm not gonna participate in something because I wanna examine myself and work through it before I receive this. I don't wanna do so where it's a joke. Because we'll be making a mockery of it. Those, same as those that were getting drunk and those that were overeating and, and being cliquish and not being the body and not gathering and scattering and mattering like they were supposed to. Not loving and leading one another and edifying one another. They were getting together for themselves. So what if today when we receive communion, we really reflected on Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is prophesying that Jesus was going to come. Here's what Isaiah 53 says. For he was despised and he was rejected by men. For Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom from men would hide their faces because he was despised and they esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
For Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For he was oppressed. He was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened up, opened not up his mouth. That's the lamb of God. Not one to be mocked. He was mocked. But not one to be mocked today in the way that we receive communion. Say, I want to make it right. I want to confess sin. I want to evaluate myself. See, we take sin casually in our lives. And here's the reality. If we take sin casually, we will become a casualty to that sin. It will destroy us from the inside out. We've got to remember what's been done for us. Because when we remember well, we worship well. And Paul was just simply quoting Jesus when he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back. And as we pass communion, I want to invite you to reflect. I want to invite you to confess sin. I want to invite you to do business with God, a time for for self-evaluation, for personal holiness. Take both cups that are stacked together. That's the bread and the cup. And if you want to let it pass, that's fine. If you're just surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, I, I ask that you invite him to be your Lord and Savior, then receive communion with us. They'll give us some instructions. As you're prepared, you can go ahead and take it. They'll give us some instructions as we get to close in a few songs together.